0: What's up, everybody? Uh, My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance. Uh, Super grateful that everybody is here. Grateful for all the new people. This is your first Sunday, second Sunday, 200th Sunday. We're very grateful to gather and to be in the building. Shout out to everybody joining us online. Very grateful to have time with you. Uh, Before we get started in today's message, I want to pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, you know all the things that uh, have happened in this past week in our lives. And Lord, I pray that the the worries about the things that we might see in the future, the frustrations we have over things in the past, Lord, that those would not dominate our attention right now, but that we would be able to be present with you right now. Lord, may we realize that you are closer than the next air that we breathe. And Lord, we ask that you would speak to us exactly where we are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Amen. So for those of you who um, are in my age bracket, uh, I just turned 40 a couple of uh, months ago, and being 40 is actually pretty fantastic because the older you get, you can use just that fact that you are 40 as an excuse to not do things. My go-to statement now is this, I'm a grown man, I'm 40 years old, I'm not doing that. And that's like a really effective way to end a conversation. My cousin and I went to Miami this past week to watch a basketball game, and we had some mix-up at the hotel, so we were supposed to have two queen beds. We ended up having a king and a cot, and I was like, I'm a grown man, dog. I'm 40 years old. I'm not sleeping in a cot. I got back problems, bro. I got sciatica. I'm not laying on no, on no cot. And my cousin was like, yeah, that makes sense. It's a good, it's a good reason, and he slept on the cot. Thank God for his humility, but in general, in life, I've realized the older that I get, the more blunt I am about avoiding things that I don't like. But I know I'm not alone. I know it is very much so human nature for us to all avoid things that we don't like. Sometimes the things that we don't like and that we avoid are good. It doesn't, help, it doesn't hurt anybody for you to avoid them. A couple of years ago, I got peer pressured into watching the movie Us by Jordan Peele, the horror movie. Never again. I will never watch a horror movie ever again in my life because the concept is crazy. Why am I going to pay you to make me miserable for two hours? Some people can watch horror movies and go to bed, but I slept with a nightlight. I took my kids' nightlight out of their room and put it in mine for a couple of weeks. So sometimes we avoid things that we don't like, and it, it doesn't hurt anybody. It actually makes your life better. But other times, there are things that are actually pretty essential to your life and we avoid them. Uh, When's the last time you've been to the dentist? That's actually probably the most uncomfortable I've ever seen people at Renaissance, is asking them about the dentist. Right, there there are sometimes some of us in this room, myself included, right, it'd probably be a good idea to reschedule that that physical, that dentist appointment. Uh, We avoid things that we don't like, and in some cases, it's actually to our detriment. Now, there's a scripture that we're gonna talk about today that talks about a topic that I would rather avoid. It talks about something that I would love to do without. It talks about suffering, challenges, trials in our life. Now, in general, with the things that, I'd like to avoid, that I would want to avoid, I would rather take a shortcut or try to find a solution. But one thing I've realized in life is that when you take a shortcut, you actually end up hurting yourself in the process. When I was in college, I, we, I played in the basketball team. And uh, during our preseason, before the season started, we had a bunch of workouts that we had to do. And one of the workouts that we had to do in preseason was we had to run two miles. So anybody who's seen my half marathon pictures know that me and running, especially long distances, it's not my thing. It's not what I specialize in. And um, I would always come towards the back of the pack. And one day, I was running my two miles, and it was, we had to do it in a certain amount of time. And I saw my assistant coach who monitored our times, he went to go like, go get some Gatorade or something. I timed it perfectly so that when he came back around and asked me what lap I was on, I just lied. I was, he was, I was on lap like six and I was like, last lap coach, last lap coach. And he was like, oh, Rice, you really running today, boy. And I was like, yeah, man, brought all my energy. And like, the rest of the day, um, I finished my lap and the coach was like, so proud of me. He was like, Rice. Man, everybody hands in, like, Rice, take us out. What do you want to say on three? Like, Rice, you really brought your energy today. Now, I saved myself the agony of running another lap. But I did lose a lot that day, actually. I lost some integrity with my teammates. They knew me as a dude who was taking shortcuts instead of being someone who was suffering alongside the team. I didn't gain anything by not running that lap. As a matter of fact, that shortcut actually cost me. In life, there's been many a time where it's not running laps around a college track, but it's been with difficult things in my life that I just would rather take a shortcut to. But here's what we're gonna see in today's scripture. There is a direct correlation to the trials that you face and the maturity that you are able to have. And that pain in your life will transform you if you'll allow it. Sometimes it it will transform you for the negative And it will cause bitterness and a lot of unprocessed stuff to happen in our lives. But other times, if you will allow it, there is a a direct correlation between the trials we face and the maturity we are able to experience. So the scripture comes in James. Uh, James is uh, the the book of the Bible that we're going to be in for the next couple of months. And here's what James says. He says, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Here's the reason that James gives. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. What James is doing is he's presenting us something that we would rather not be a part of the Christian life. And this is not impractical, This is not insensitive. What James is getting at is there is a direct correlation. There is a tie between the version of faith that you say you want, that you want. All of us would want to be more mature. We wanna move forward down the line. We wanna be more like Jesus for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ. And James is saying that one of the ways you get there is not just by reading a, a good book. It's not just by listening to a good sermon. It's not just by participating in a really good growth group or DNA group, although community is really important. It's not just by doing a 15 minute devotion in the morning to read your Bible, although that is helpful. It's not just by going to a prayer service. James says that one of the key catalysts in your life that is actually transformative, that will make you more mature, are trials. It's pain, it's suffering. Now, this is not the only way for us to grow, but it certainly is a way. So consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Uh, Before we get too far down the road, I want us to look at this first verse and this word, joy, because for a lot of people, that throws us off. Because when you think about the experiences in your life, the trials that you are facing, the last word you would attach to the end of that sentence is joy. You can come up with a bunch of adjectives that you would describe it, but joy is not one of them. And that's partly because I think we misunderstand what joy is. Joy is not happiness. Happiness is what happens to you. I'm happy when I am sitting on my couch, watching a game, and my kids are quiet. That lasts for like nine minutes in nine-minute blocks. The rest of the time, my life is chaotic, and I'm just recovering from uh, being yelled at by a four-year-old. True story, I don't even know how this happened. My four-year-old has taken my spot on the couch, and I'm like really wrestling with my therapist about this. Like, he won't let me sit on the spot on the couch. It's a fight, but that's a whole other sermon. Um. But happiness is what happens to you, right? We're happy when the life situations are favorable in our life. Joy in Scripture is something that is much bigger and better than happiness. Here's a good definition of joy. Joy is a settled state of confidence and hope. Joy is not dependent on circumstances. It is settled. Joy is like a well that is fueled by a a river underneath the earth's surface. Joy is something that is flowing independent of what's happening above ground. If it rains, there's there's still water there. If it's scorching hot, there's still water there because in that well, it is not dependent on what's happening above the earth's surface. Joy is a lot like that, that it's not dependent on what's happening around you. And here is the beautiful and simultaneously scary truth about God. God is not after your happiness. God is after your joy. God is not after your happiness, although God is not opposed to your happiness. I've heard a lot of preachers take it way too far. God is not opposed to you being happy. But the end result of what James is getting at in this scripture is that God is after something much bigger then your happiness. God wants your joy. Now, another quick caveat about this concept of joy. Um, joy does not ignore or dismiss the current realities of your life. So, man, one of the most unhelpful things I've encountered over the years have been really immature Christians who have just pretended like everything was great when it wasn't. Like, bro, what Bible, what earth do you, what planet do you live on? when they spend their lives over-spiritualizing things and ignoring the current realities. So in scripture, joy does not ignore what's happening. Joy is something that is just, it overwhelms and it overshadows our challenges. So it is not one or the other. These joy and pain can coexist. You can be in a painful situation and still have the settled confidence of hope that is joy. So the opposite of joy is not pain. The opposite of joy is hopelessness. Here's what Jesus says in John 16, 21. And Jesus talks about joy in the concept of a a woman giving birth. And all of the women in the room who have given birth, please don't throw any tomatoes at me as I talk about the process of childbirth. Here's what Jesus says in John 16, 21. A woman giving birth to a child has pain. Y'all are like, yes, Jesus. Thank you for that insight. Because her time has come. But here's what Jesus says. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Now, I know this experience secondhand from what I have learned from my wife and from from other women that I've talked to. Um, So I don't know this personally. But when I was in the delivery room with my wife, we had one rule. And when in doubt, go to rule number one, Jordan. The only rule we had in in the delivery room was, Jordan, don't talk. Like if you, if you think you have a good idea, rule one, don't talk. If you have something to say to me, tell the nurse and have the nurse tell me what you want, uh, what you want me to know. Write it down, text me, but do not. I do not want to see your mouth open. Because <laughs> my wife was in so much anguish and she was so miserable. But after our sons were born, it wasn't that her body miraculously healed up 100%. Her body had actually gone through the most traumatic experience of her life. It wasn't that her body wasn't aching and throbbing in pain, but something happened. There was now a new source of something that overshadowed and overwhelmed the physical pain that she was in. It doesn't ignore it as if it's not there. It just overwhelms it and overshadows it. And what Jesus is saying, what scripture tells us, is that joy doesn't dismiss the reality and the pain of our lives, but the settled state of confidence that God wants you to have overwhelms and conquers and overshadows is more pressing to us than just the pain. So joy and pain can certainly uh, coexist. Joy overwhelms pain. So having said that, um, the easiest explanation for why this is so hard for us to, to think about what it looks like for us to endure trials and hardships and suffering is just because every single fiber in our body has been hardwired to avoid pain. So when a child is hot, when a child is young, rather, one of the first lessons they learn is the word hot. Even if a child doesn't know a, a lot of words, when you say hot, they touch something that's hot and they immediately instinctively know it because everything in our body is hardwired to avoid pain. Not just physical pain, but also so- social pain. Much of the way that a lot of us behave right now has been because we did something, we said something, and we were ostracized or we were socially maligned. And we learn through that painful experience how to operate in this world. Now, everything in our body is against us experiencing pain. But sometimes, as I'm sure you've seen in your own life, painful moments have actually been the most transforming things for you. That sometimes, you don't need to be comfortable. Sometimes we need to be a little bit disrupted in our lives. Sometimes pain that is coming through wise and gifted hands is something that could actually transform us, not for the worse, but for the better. But certainly pain is difficult and it's not something that any one of us should want or should invite uh, into our lives. That being said, one of the most, um, the other challenge to this as we get into the scripture, I was thinking about it this morning. There's been times in my life where I would read James 1, 2 through 4, and it says, consider, it, you know, consider joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So I hear the promise of Scripture that this would make me mature and complete, and I'm like, I don't care. I don't want that. I would actually, if you allowed me to have it, the choice... I would opt for the version of faith that is less mature and less painful. Now I've I've told this story a number of times. Um, uh, My wife and I are both widowed, and I'll give you the two-minute version. My wife and I are both widowed, she lost her late husband in a motorcycle accident, I lost my late wife to cancer, a primary cardiac angiosarcoma, and I remember one day sitting next to her in the oncology ward, and we were at Columbia Presbyterian, and we were sitting up on in the room. She was taking a nap and I was in one of these recliner chairs and I was reading through some blog or something and this scripture came up and I remember thinking God, if you're using this situation if this situation is going to make me more mature, I want to be less mature. Like not even trying to be deep that eventually I got to the point where I was like, ooh, Lord, you're working. I'm like, no, don't work. I don't want this. I think the reality of the situation is for many of us we actually don't really want what James is telling us that we, we need. Now, this is not to dismiss the reality and the harshness, or this is not also to say that we shouldn't, in these moments, pray for God to move to change our circumstance, but there are moments where we find ourselves that there is no solution, there is no shortcut to our problem, and what do you do when you can't take a shortcut out of it, and there is no solution to solve it, what do you do then? James says to consider it all joy. Uh, here's the crazy thing about me that might also be true. Here's what Paul says in Romans 3 and 11, and this was a reality that I was confronted with when I was sitting in an oncology ward. Here's what Paul says, there is no one who understands and there is no one who seeks God. you are like, wait, I'm in church right now. I'm seeking God right now. And I think what Paul is getting at in the scripture by saying there's no one who seeks God, what Paul is saying is there's no one who seeks God, period. For the vast majority of my life, I've sought God to, to do something for me. And very few, and very few, and far in between, have I ever just sought God for God. And what Paul is saying is you don't want, you actually don't want what God is offering. We really just want God to give us some things. One of my friends said it like this in one of his sermons. He said, Scripture calls God our Abba Father, a term that implies intimacy and connection. But in our hearts, we'd rather have a sugar daddy. Someone who just gives us what we want. Now, here's the craziest part about all of this. Like, God knows that about me. And God knows that about you. He knows how backwards our motivations are. And guess what? God loves you anyway. The the story of Scripture is a story of a one-way love that comes down and pursues people who do not deserve it, who do not want it, and pours out love on them anyway. One of my friends is a pastor, and we worked together at a church downtown a a number of years ago, and he tells a story about how he came to faith. He grew up in a small town where his dad was a pastor. Now, to paint the picture, his town was about 1,000 people, and his father's church was about 2,000 people. So his father was a celebrity in their entire county. Everybody knew who his dad was. Um, His dad was a very straight-laced man, whose son brought him a great deal of embarrassment because his son was always getting in trouble. Uh, One day my friend got arrested, he was caught up in drugs, got arrested and ended up going to juvie and um, his father was just absolutely horrified. More horrified than what his son had done was the separation that he was experiencing in their relationship. One day the judge agreed to let the, the son out, my friend out, under one condition that he was gonna be under the father's supervision and that if he ran away He was going to have to go back to juvie. The father took the son home and they got home and um, everything was going decent for, for a couple of hours. And then the son asked his dad for some cigarettes. Now, father hated above everything, he hated cigarettes. And in his mind, he was facing a choice. My son is going to run away and leave if he doesn't get these things, which I hate. So the father did the unthinkable. He goes to the grocery store where he is well-known, this pastor of a large church in a small town, goes to the clerk, goes behind the counter and asks, where are the cigarettes? The father buys a, a carton of cigarettes and is walking through the parking lot carrying the thing he hates, carrying the thing he detests in the hopes that his son would not run away. That bet that he placed worked. The hope that he had that day that his son would allow him to speak into his life, to love him, and that that love would transform his son was the hope of the father who carried the thing that he hated. Here's the story of scripture, my brothers and my sisters. In Hebrews 11, it says this, let us look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who despising, who um, endured the cross, despising its shame. Jesus carried our sins to the cross, even though he hated every last one of them even though he knew in his heart of hearts that you and I would abuse his grace time and time again. And why did Jesus do this? So he can give you a lecture on how to live? Jesus did this because he loves you. He loves you even though he knows that you try to take advantage of his grace. He loves you even though he knows that you don't really want him for him. You want him for other things. And here's the hope of the father. Here's the heart of the father for you that God demonstrates his love for us, that while you're still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. One of my favorite old songs that we used to sing around Good Friday on on a special choir Sundays, they hung him high, they stretched him wide, he hung his head and for me he died. That's love. Jesus took all of our sins, even the ones that, we pretend that don't exist, like the the concept that we don't even want God for who God really truly is. So, pain is hard because we don't um, we, because every fiber of our body doesn't want to experience pain. And pain is also difficult because even if we agree with what James is saying here in the scripture about the what temptation, I mean, what trials do for us, we don't really want the maturity that God does. But God is so committed to us that God wants us to endure. And God wants us to allow him access in our lives to really transform us if, he, if we will let him. So I want to turn back to the scripture in verse 2. This God who loves us, who's after our joy, he tells us this in James 1 and 2. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Now there's two words in this phrase, or two phrases in the this, in this scripture that I want us to be paying attention to right now. The first is the word consider. What James is saying is, Your situation is not going to change. It may or may not change. But what I want to change is your perspective of your situation. Let me say that again. Your situation may or may not change. But what I'm asking you to do is to consider it differently. And James knows that how you experience your life will depend on your perspective. How different people experience life in so many cases has nothing to do with their situation, but rather their perspective of the situation. So what James is saying in this verse is to consider it a great joy, my brothers and my sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Uh, after, um, after my late wife was diagnosed with cancer, she had to get a couple of really big surgeries in the first couple of days. And after the first surgery she had, I'll never forget talking to the, the nurse in the recovery room. and. This woman spent at least 10 minutes trying to prepare me to have a good perspective to walk into the room to see her. She said, Mr. Rice, when you go in the room, you're going to see all of these machines, and they're going to be beeping, and that's normal. That is normal. They are doing what they're supposed to do. There's no alarm in that. If you touch your wife's skin, it's going to feel a little cold and clammy. That's perfectly within, um, uh, that's perfectly normal. She just had the surgery. Uh, You know, her blood is recirculating, all these different things. There's nothing wrong with that. And then over and over and over again, she gave me all of these things which to expect to help change my perspective because she knew that what I was going to see was not going to change, but what I was going to experience depended greatly on my perspective. So if I was uninformed and had bad expectations going in, then I was not going to be able to endure what I was going to see. And going in the hospital room, I was like, oh, she actually doesn't look as bad as I imagined that she might look. Here's what scripture does if you read through scripture. It shows us men and women who have gone through difficulties in their life over and over and over again. And Scripture, first and foremost, is meant to prepare us to give a vision of what God is like and what relationship with God is like. Secondarily, it's meant to show us what it looks like to be in relationship with Him. And there are so many people, if you read the Bible, whose lives are filled with with tragedy, And one of the things that will happen to you if you read the Bible a little bit is that you will become, you will have just a perspective change. You'll see people who loved God and God loved them who went through some stuff and they came out on the other side still trusting that God was good and that God was with them. So that's the first thing about that verse, that God is after really our perspective change and how we are seeing our situation. Um, Secondly, there's two words at the end of this. He says, various trials. So I have two fears when I tell the story about my late wife. One is that people will give me a lot of sympathy, and listen, I I have healed from so much, the Lord has been very good to heal me of a lot. If I wanted people to feel bad for me, I would tell them about my life as a Knicks fan, and then I would get (laughs) a lot of sympathy. The second fear I have is that you would start to see yourself and your situations as unimportant. As like, well, this is not a real trial because nobody died. It's almost like going to the hospital, for a stubbed toe when someone is there for a broken femur. But if you ever stubbed your toe, you know that joint hurt, and it matters. James says, consider a great joy whenever you face various trials. Some of these trials are small, but they're still a trial. Some of these trials are huge, and James wants us considering that in your life, don't give yourself a pass, don't take yourself out of this bracket. This is for you as well. Uh, verse three, continues, it says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Here's what James is saying. Testing, as it was understood in the biblical days, was like the process of turning up the heat on precious metal, like gold or silver. And by turning up the heat on gold and silver, what you were doing is you were burning away all the impurities. Implicit in this statement, James is saying there's a number of things. Number one, he's saying that your faith is precious. Your faith is precious. Yes, we have one person who's really excited about that. Y'all can clap. And two, what James is saying is the process of turning up the heat in your life has purpose. And it's being done by a professional. He's not going to burn it too much away. But the process of testing does produce endurance. It actually is burning away the impurities in your life. And here's what James is getting at. In trials, in pain, in suffering, you will discover things about yourself that you would have never discovered any other way. In trials, we are confronted with the authenticity of our faith, or in many cases, the lack of authenticity in our faith. You know, so many times in my life, I've realized that I can come to church and and raise my hands and sing songs just because life is going well. And who doesn't want a God that makes your life go well? But would you trust God? Would you want God if the answer was no? If the answer to the prayer of your heart was no, what then? The people who have inspired me the most in life, it's not even close, are the people who have gotten no's and they've still endured. The people whose lives are always rosy and everything is going well and they somehow navigate their life with this perfect Instagram version of life There's no shade against any of that. The people who have deeply inspired me are the people who have had to go through some things and they've held on. Let me ask you a question. At the end of your life, which version of faith would you want to say you've had? Do you want the version of faith that got everything you wanted and you're shallow and you've inspired no one? That your faith will not live beyond you because all you've gotten was stuff just for you. Or would you want a version of faith that's much more dangerous, that says, God, though you slay me, yet will I trust you, that stands and doesn't ignore the pain, doesn't invite more pain, but says, God, I want the endurance to stay, and I want to be a real follower of you. I want for me what you want for me. At the end of our life, which version would you rather have? There's a couple of people in my life who have been those beacons of life for me, these lighthouses. Uh, for me. The one was my late wife, Danielle. She had a journal entry that she wrote in her her journal that I didn't read it while she was alive because I wanted to give her a safe space to process everything that she was going through. And after she died, um, one of the main reasons that I feel confident as a Christian today was because of her witness. There was one journal entry that she wrote. It was called Fight, Finish, Um, Keep the Faith. Fight, finish, keep the faith. And that mantra has haunted me in the very best of ways for the last decade. In moments where I wanted to give up, I was determined to fight. In the moments where I just didn't care what was going to happen, I said, Lord, I want to finish. In the moments where I felt like my feet were slipping, I kept the faith. Not because Jordan is so strong on his own, but because of the example of those who went ahead of me. There's another person in my life, one of my mentors, a man named Brother Al. Brother Al did prison ministry, and he was my mentor there for two years. And uh, Brother Al did 20—he worked as a volunteer at Sing Sing and went and taught a Bible study there every Thursday night for two decades straight. Even when his life was miserable, he ended up passing away of cancer himself. Even when he was going through chemotherapy, he was still showing up on Thursday if he had the strength because he was that committed he was that committed to tell people about the goodness of Jesus when his own body was betraying him. And his life, his witness, is the reason I'm a pastor today. Thank you. Yes. So let us, let endurance have its full effect in your life. Let endurance have its full effect in your life so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Nothing. What would your life look like if you truly gave yourself to this process, that you didn't seek any shortcuts, but you trusted and you prayed and you hoped and you committed your life to a God saying, God, I know many things. I know that this situation, that you in my life right now, nothing is meaningless. You're using it all, painful as it is, and I'm not alone. So to let endurance have its full effect The danger is that if we don't let it have its full effect, uh, we will do something what an author said, that avoiding trials in our lives allow us to smuggle dysfunction into our future. Avoiding trials and pain allow us to smuggle dysfunction uh, into your future. So what we need to do is we need to remain. There's a scripture in John 15 that says this. It says, remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself, unless it remains in a vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. Now, I used to teach the scripture thinking that what Jesus was calling people to do was to abide in him, and that this was like, you know, you do 15 minutes of devotional reading in the morning, and this is me abiding with Jesus. And to a certain extent, that is true. God wants us doing that. But what, jo- what Jesus was doing here in the scripture was Jesus was talking to his disciples knowing that they were about to go through intense persecution. And his command to them was, just don't run away. Remain. Just stay there. I'm not asking you to do anything else. Just stay there and allow me to do my work. Don't prematurely judge what I'm doing in your life. Just stay there. Just remain. Just wait. And in life... So often, we, we need a number of things to have the confidence and the endurance to just stay there and to trust God even uh, when, life is, when life is hard. First and foremost, we need real good community. If you're here on Sunday and you, you get the LIFO award, last in, first out, um, I get it. I've done this in churches before. You need to know people. You need other people that will help you stay grounded. Secondly, we need the daily rhythm of Scripture in our lives to point us to the realities that our souls need to hear. Our souls long and need to hear the words of God spoken to us. We will not come to these conclusions on our own. Uh, one big commercial admonition that I have for you is to all read the book of James with us. If you don't know what, what else to read, read through the book of James with us. You, should pro- you can get through it in about 15 minutes. The last thing that we need is we need God, we need God to help us remain. So let's turn to him in prayer and do that right now. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us the ability to remain. Father, I pray that we would be able to trust you, to consider it, to count it all joy, all the trials, knowing that these trials are producing for us endurance. And Lord, I pray that we would be a community of people holding each other together, pointing ourselves towards you, And Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage to trust you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.